Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Contact, Robert Zemeckis' 1997 adaptation of scientist Carl Sagan's novel about the search for signs of intelligent life in the universe, and what might happen if we found some. In Arrival, Earth doesn't have to search at all. Instead, aliens just show up without explaining what they want or whether or not they come in peace. It's a science fiction setup almost as old as science fiction itself. The aliens are here. What do they want? But it's one made lyrical, disorienting, and emotional by Denis Villeneuve's approach to the material. The film opens with Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, recalling the life and ultimately the loss of her daughter to cancer via scenes shot in tight, lovely, Malick-worthy compositions. It then connects that loss, in ways that will only become fully clear later, to Louise's attempts to speak to a pair of aliens who express themselves via complex visual symbols. They have something important to say, and Louise knows she can grasp it, but as tensions mount around the globe, time might not be on her side. All the while, the film grows at once dreamier and more unsettling. Villeneuve makes it clear that cataclysm is just one miscommunication away, between the aliens or the humans attempting to understand them. The situation spins out of control just as Louise's grasp on reality starts to slip. We'll talk about Arrival and more after the break. More objects have landed around the world. This is one of 12. I'm never going to be able to speak their words. Got two days. Figure something out. I am human. Their language. We need to make sure that they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. Language is messy, and sometimes one can be both. Are you dreaming in their language? It's possible they're prodding us to fight among ourselves. This is just a way to force us to work together for once. It's more complicated than that. How is it more complicated? Russia just executed one of their own to keep their secret. We've got 21 hours before we start global war. So how do we clarify their intentions? I go back in. So, what did everyone make of Arrival? Let's start uh, with you, Scott. I love it. It snapped me like a twig at, <laughs> at, uh, at Toronto because I, I I did not expect the emotional component of that film to hit quite as hard as it 
did the moment I realized because it's a pretty brainy film. I mean, the, the vast majority of the film is they're really working to try to bridge this communication gap between different you know alien species. But but when I realized what the film was do, going to do structurally, and then what what all of that means emotionally, and what the what the real theme of the film was, then it was just like oh here it goes. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> I'm a broken I'm a broken person. That Max Richter music that uh, is the beginning of the film and then comes back around when it co- starts to come back around that in in the end it's just like oh oh boy yeah, yeah so, I so, so so it just it, it I just I found it both intellectually satisfying uh, visually so so striking and then just an emotional powerhouse I really loved it yeah this this movie really got to me I and I, I saw it the day after the election uh, we wouldn't need to get into that but but it's certainly the idea that this you know how much of the fate of everyone rests in the hands of our leaders and how perilous that can be that got to me my daughter's name is Hannah I tell her her, her name is a palindrome on more than one occasion you know and I, I enjoy smart science fiction that's also emotionally affecting this was kind of pretty much made <laughs> for me this movie and and I understand that others were weren't as strongly enthusiastic about it uh, in our immediate circle here. Tasha, Genevieve? I'll go first because I think I'm a little closer to your guys' opinions, although I don't want to speak for Tasha. But basically, if you guys are a 10 in terms of your love for this movie, I'm like, eh, 7.58. You know, like I, everything that you said was great about, like, I agree. I just didn't, don't think I felt it quite as strongly as you did. I did have an issue with the way the emotional component played out that I think really undercut its impact for me. I 100% agree on the the visuals being beautiful, the tone being just right. I did really like the hard science aspect of it and the the stuff about language and the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and, and all that. But I think what really kept me from feeling that gut punch that, that you guys talk about with the reveal of about uh, her daughter is just really has to do with the way it was revealed. And I, I don't care for certain aspects of that, which we can get deeper into. But uh, we should we should warn mild spoilers ahead. Of the, I, I think major that, spoilers major ahead. Spoilers ahead. <laughs> major yeah, spoilers. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think, think we'll have to talk about that, that if you haven't we'll see seen Arrival, arrival yet. Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people saw it. Uh, and by the time this comes out, I think true. everyone will have That's seen true. it. It was gratifying that, that uh, because it is, it's, it is it ain't contact. It's a yeah. little artier than contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was good to see that, that uh, people responded to it anyway. Now we're all looking at you, Tasha. I mean, I, I would put myself in at about the same number as Genevieve, <laughs> although hers was remarkably precise, like <laughs> to, to a scientific degree. Well, and, well, yeah, I'm on it's theme. A, it's a movie that inspires it. Yeah, exactly. Mine's, mine's more arty. Mine's a seven point. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are so many things about this movie that I really loved. Like I, the emotional content of where the story with the daughter goes, I, I was really impressed with conceptually because it was ambitious and a really interesting way. The presentation of the story visually and the the audio, the music, the kind of beautiful arty abstractness of so much of it, the images of the, uh, the mist like congealing off mm-hmm. the trees around the ship. So much of this is just, it's a beautifully shot and presented film. That 360 degree helicopter shot, like when mm-hmm. you first see the that is just eye candy. There's a lot of eye candy in this film. It's I, I really loved the tone of it. 
I was not really sold with, on the performances. I thought that there were elements to this film that I just – I don't know why they're there. There are so many things in this film that I wanted more of, one of the main things being the linguistic thing. One of the things that really threw me throughout this film was during the whole unfolding process of trying to communicate with the aliens – Things kept happening that just made no logical sense to me. So much attention is paid to here's how we would communicate with someone who doesn't know the language. So we hold up a word, then then they make a symbol and you're like, ah, it means the same thing. We hold up a different word and they make two symbols and we ignore that. And then like two minutes later, we try to indicate male and female and they hold up two symbols and we're like, that's their names. So many conclusions are jumped to throughout that entire process that just really undermined the what was going on for me. So many things that were either poorly spelled out or just didn't make logical sense. And the whole lead up to that con confrontation is stretched out so much. I, I just I kept thinking if you just had like 10 minutes less of we're going up in the black shaft of darkness, we could have spent so much more time on developing some of these characters that are in the story for very little reason. But then you won't get to see Jeremy Renner stumble in a very comically wait, yeah, manner. Oh, wait, no, you, wait, you, you, want, you, you don't want the sequence where they're going up there? And I just I wanted it to be like half all... an hour shorter. Oh. It's not that long of a movie, though. It's very 2001, and it's like yeah. it's all about the wonder, but I think it's it at the wonder at the expense of things that really needed to be no. in the story. I, don't know I, I love that sequence because I, I, it was a sort of like first encounter sequence yeah. I'd, I'd never seen I'm not going to argue for less art in order to get us, get us <laughs> moving forward on the story I mean I just that is just a standalone sequence is suddenly that you know they're used to uh, you know gravity uh, determining uh, where their bodies are going to go and and that disappears and so and so how, how do they navigate this very strange space I thought it was kind of exciting I'm puzzled by the performances comment too because I thought everyone was really great in this way I, I mean Adams is one of my favorite actors so that's that may have something to do with it but I really like her too but here she's doing this strange abstract thing that is tonally where the entire movie is mm -hmm. she it's very performative when she's dealing with her daughter and those scenes are sweet although I think they're a bit overplayed kind of in order to flesh out where she ends up at the end of the film which by the way I, I think the end of the film is really interesting like to an inception level in terms of being a conversation starter mm -hmm. and I've been having some online arguments about it and people have been posing some very interesting theories it's definitely one of those films that is not that doesn't spell out the ending so much that you can't kind of insert your own interpretation and fight for it and I respect that a lot I'm just saying to me, this film kind of tries to find a balance between arty abstraction and scientific specificity. And the particular balance it struck, I sometimes wish that balance was different. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I, maybe a little bit more time with the linguistics could have been – I found that stuff pretty fascinating. And, and, and sometimes I felt like it was a little – presented a little elliptically, but this really worked for I me. I was fascinated by a lot of it. I, I don't – I didn't feel like there were weird gaps or – lapses in, in, in logic and it was it was interesting when things were explained about what her process was and why it was going to take as long as it did and what certain aspects of language had to be broken down in what order you know I really yeah. enjoyed all the pleasure that she and, and Jeremy Renner's character took in, in every new breakthrough it seemed like how science scientists would operate what, we, what did we think of that like mid film Jeremy Renner swoops in in voiceover to tell us everything that uh, Louise has figured out yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 
hated it so much. <laughs> I, I, I like the little the music cue, the like pop, 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 music cue. But then Jeremy Renner started talking. I'm like, what? Get out of here. Yeah, we, um, hadn't, we hadn't heard him. Uh, <laughs> it was almost like we had in order for this film to make any sense. We've got to put this stuff in here. But why, but why does he have to be the one to say it? I, well, again, I mean, he has so little presence throughout the movie. And yet we're supposed to buy it. It's, it just that reminded me a lot of contact. He has very little presence throughout the movie. But the relationship between him and Amy Adams character is really key to where the movie ends up. So we find ourselves kind of trying to insert him in more mm. into places he doesn't belong. What I understand from the novella is that he's a much more significant character who moves the plot forward. Where they ended up with that narratively, like he doesn't really have a purpose here. Well, he, he's the one who has to say, you want to make a baby? Uh, exactly. <laughs> he is, he's a sperm donor. I like how much of that relationship took place outside the scope of the film. We had to kind of fill in that blank for ourselves later, but it's sort of the rise and fall of it. I, I mean, to me, that was some of the most moving stuff. I, I don't I don't know that, you know, we really got a great sense of passion between those two characters, but I don't necessarily think we were supposed to. I think this was, in some ways, that was bracketed off for events we don't see. I want to get into the relationship between the two of them a little more in connections, because I think there's actually a lot in common between their relationship and the central relationship at contact. So I don't want to overplay it here. I guess what I'll say instead is it's not that I felt that this movie needed to spend more time on that relationship because it has nothing to do with most of the big ideas of the film. And I like the fact that this is a film about about big ideas and about style and about art. I'm glad that it, it it didn't like focus too much on a relationship that would have seemed much smaller than that story. What worked in Arrival for me more than anything else was the tension of the unknown. First, just the unknown of what the aliens want. And then as that progressed, all of the little mysteries that spin off of it. I loved that aspect of it, like wholeheartedly. I like the aliens, too. I thought these are really interesting sorts of, of creatures we haven't really seen before. And, and science fiction films are not seen that often. Uh, our film spotting family member, Allison Wilmore, I believe, called them space calamari. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of that. Yeah. I really wanted to reveal at some point that they were just the hands of some like, vast I thought, thing. I thought we were going to get that at, at one point. Yeah, that was... Uh, a, I mean, a, we, no. we see in the end when she goes into the little floaty area with them that they are bigger than we saw before. Mm -hmm. Like, they extend farther up and it's it's not exactly their hand but there is more to them than than we saw through the glass yeah but that just uh, like it, it makes them more look more like squid up there, yeah yeah it's squid all the way up <laughs> have any of you guys seen the third season of torchwood mm, no. it's just a it's a mini series called children of earth and it resembles this so strongly in so many ways Aliens come to Earth. It's mysterious and creepy. The main character of Torchwood is called out to communicate with them. It takes place in this room where there's a giant screen and there's mist behind it. And the aliens are like the aliens here. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of what will the world do tension. And the reveals in that are so insanely creepy. It had a really heavy effect on how I was watching this. Hmm, interesting. Because this ends up being like a little more warm and nurturing than uh, the direction it could have gone. Uh, but <laughs> I was on edge the entire time because I I did feel like I had seen this all before. It really does a good job, I thought, of, of building up a sense of mounting tension. I mean, like, like Contact, it, it uses these talking heads on the news as an exposition device. But I really do. I mean, there's some nice touches early on where sort of the, the – 
car accident in, in the in the parking lot where everyone's just kind of mm. freaking out and the students who don't show up to class or just it captures the tremendous disruption that an alien encounter might have and also I bought the way all the government reaction reacted to it it was it would not be an, an untense situation and, and this is, portrays yeah. that very well that's something I want to bring up in connections that specific issue but I do want to here say I mean the theme that resonated most for me and it, and it is one of my favorite themes is that idea that you get to at the end that sad experiences that tragic experiences that are worth living you know what i mean like like it's like it's the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind theme of just like knowing what she knows is going to happen which is terribly sad you go through it anyway and i mean that theme is also in um what's the pixar film that i love upside down or what was inside out oh inside out inside out inside inside out just like that kind of like it's okay to let for sadness to be a part of one's human experience and it's something that is necessary and i love that sentiment i love the way it's threaded through this movie as it is well those are the things that i like as well so right and and the whole concept of being kind of outside time or, or removed from time or seeing all time at once it's a, it's a heady idea but it's also it's a, it's an emotional idea that sort of be able to take this all in and as you say you know uh, survey all all the happiness and tragedy in your life at all at once and be at peace with this i, I found that really profoundly portrayed in this and, and i i like the that ultimately ended up being the focus of the movie. It's also just a really tricky plot thing. I mean, it really is the Bill and Ted trick of I'm going to get out of this situation by having fixed this situation in the future. Well, backing up, we're all familiar with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and like it's brought up in the movie and it's kind of the organizing principle of this movie. Oh, what, well, could you explain this? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Louise states it in the film, the idea that the language we know affects how we see the world. Mm. And so the heptapods language is a circular language. It goes back and forth. It, it is not linear and therefore they do not think or experience the world in, in a linear manner the way we do. So as Louise begins to understand their language, she begins to be able to see back and forth in time, basically. I really like that as a explanation. In practice, the part with her talking to the Chinese general in the with the future, uh, like informing the present, that really kind of broke my brain in not a good way. Like it, it was like, this doesn't work for me in terms of like the her that was in the future, not knowing what had happened in the past, like her n- not knowing that she had called the general. And so it's like the future is affecting the past and that just doesn't. You're just work thinking for too me. literally, man. No, <laughs> I, I, no, I guess. No, I guess. That, that did work for me. I mean, I, I, I like the way it bit my brain a little. Yeah, it worked for me too. But I think it. I mean, it's like trying to draw a visual representation of a fourth or fifth dimensional object. Yeah. There, you have to find workarounds for it. I feel like in this case, the workaround was she is just absorbing all of these experiences from other times, and yeah. she's trying to absorb an experience that she hasn't had yet and understand and where it is in her timeline and she's reacting to it there. That's how I took it. Yeah, it's more like the carrying idea back and forth that like didn't really work for me. I don't want to say it didn't work for me. It just, it was a little bit of a bridge too far of an idea that was otherwise I thought really strongly realized. It took it just a, a step too far into uh, when this be, uh, man, you know? Like, it, um, <laughs> Can you use that McConaughey yeah, voice? I feel no. like he should be saying it. Right. But I, I also do want to go back to the emotional element 
in this stuff with her daughter. <laughs> I joked to Scott uh, last night after we saw this movie for a second time that it's a, a pro-life movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Oh, I've, yeah, I've heard that absolutely. interpretation yeah. floating around, and, and I find it a, kind of a narrow interpretation. Yeah, it, it's, it's glib, and I'm, I'm not actually suggesting that. But I do want to talk about how that is revealed, because I don't think the movie plays fair with it by presenting for the first half of the movie we are assuming that what we see at the beginning of the film is flashback and the way we meet louise it is strongly suggested that she is in mourning and that she has experienced everything with her daughter already then it backtracks on that i understand why like it totally fits with the theme of the movie and the supper wharf hypothesis like i get it but the emotional impact of it was undercut by the feeling of like, oh, you tricked me. <laughs> like, oh, that wasn't fair. Um, so just to kind of like narratively speaking, I think the impact would have worked just as well without that opening kind of monologue sent to those Malikian images. Like I think seeing her have those those visions as she begins to understand the language would still work without having kind of seen the whole story at the beginning. Oh, I disagree. Because yeah, you, like, I certainly agree that there's a moment when you realize that that is, that those are things yet to come where you're kind of like, oh, so I don't know this character at all. Right. Like, why is she sad girl in snow if none of that has happened yet? But at the same time, this movie is about trying to make you recalibrate your understanding of the world. And it's trying to put you in her shoes of trying to recalibrate Calibrate your understanding of the world. I don't think that would work if she was experiencing these flash forwards in a way that we could tell that that was what they were. And I, and I get that it works backwards and forwards, but I don't know. I kind of just wish it worked forwards. I guess I'm, 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 I, I don't speak heptopod. <laughs> I think there's a really interesting conversation going on out there. And boy, if there was ever a time for feedback, I really want to know how people listening to this reacted to this. What a lot of people are saying is that this is a essentially a Jonathan Nolan film that works better than Jonathan Nolan films that is going to reward repeat viewing as opposed to falling apart on repeat viewing. And there are other people who are saying that this is a trick movie, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, and that once you know what happened, like it has no repeat value. I'm definitely in the camp of I want to see this movie again and see how it plays. And I bet it's going to reveal a lot of nuance. But I haven't had the chance to rewatch it. You guys have. I'm curious both how it played on for you on second viewing and what you think rewatching this film is going to like bring to people. I think I liked it about the same on second viewing maybe a, a little less because I was watching for things that kind of validated the doubts I felt uh, the first time I saw it. But I, I don't want to like overstate the extent to which these things bother me. Like I still really enjoyed this movie and I do like most of what it's doing with its its themes and its big ideas. There, there's just something that kept it from pushing over the edge for me. I also wish I had figured out the Sanskrit definition of war because I listened to it twice and still did not hear what Forrest Whitaker says in that. So if anyone caught that, please write in because none of us can figure it out. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I missed it as well. I mean, I I would say, well, for one, the we, the theater we saw it in last night had I thought quite crummy projection, and so the film mm. and sound. Where'd you go? Well, I'm not going to say it on the on the air, but but in any case, we it, it just I think that it would have been enhanced by a better presentation. I would so like to see that. this in IMAX, uh, but I did mm. see it. I saw it at, at Toronto, and there's just there's no chance that a second viewing was going to have the kind of impact that it had on me in the first because I, I was blindsided by it emotionally in, in a way I couldn't be because I knew what it was the second viewing but I did I did appreciate the technique and just in the tone of the thing and the look of it I, I really love his interest in textures and landscapes that's just a, kind of an obsession of his from like movies like Enemy and Prisoners and certainly uh, Sicario where you get all those really cool almost alien like overhead shots between uh, the the borders and uh, you get that here too when you're entering into the spaceship and uh, you get lots of shots of ceilings and it's just he has a very interesting visual obsessions and so I was kind of find myself kind of focusing a lot on the graphic qualities of the film as well as the kind of emotional qualities but I, I, I do like I think it's a really good movie I love it when we did a big conversation piece about this at The Verge and the commenters just jumped all over us for a point that I'm still trying to wrap my my head around. To me, the point of the ending where Louise goes through with plans to go through with having a child is her actively making the choice to experience the pain in order to experience the joy. Most of the people who talk to us about this film believe that she now sees all time as one. She had already made that choice. Her choice is predestined and that this is a movie about how free will doesn't really exist, how it's all part of a continuum. Did that occur to you? Can you accept that reading of it? I can't because so much about the movie. I mean, you have to step back several degrees away from the tone and all the action in the movie, which is very much about action. It's very much about working on on things and solving working through problems and and making choices and going back in this dangerous place uh, when you're not supposed to be there because you know you have to. And I think to zoom back, contact style maybe, would be to assume a level of irony in this film that I don't see as there or it's contra the experience of actually watching the film. And she's also posing a question to herself explicitly that she is answering the affirmative. She's making a choice. I, I like your interpretation of it. I don't yeah. like, the, I don't like uh, <laughs> well, come on, come on, Verge readers. I mean, it reminded me of the glory days of the dissolve. People make really long, nuanced, deep, reasoned statements about why it's all predestined. And for me, it's one of those, maybe I just can't accept what's there because it doesn't make emotional sense to me. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious how people take that. I, I agree with you guys. I don't think it's uh, about free will. Although I, I will say something that just occurred to me in terms of her making the choice to experience the pain, forgetting to experience her daughter's life she also makes that choice for jeremy renner's Mm -hmm. character and we see through the flash forwards that it takes a serious toll on him and on his relationship with his daughter to find out the decision she made and what she knew and i think that adds an interesting wrinkle to her choice that is not there if you choose to uh, look at it as a predestined set of events. There are definitely some very angry people online that feel like part of the message of this film is the woman gets to decide whether to have the baby and the the father gets no input whatsoever. Just as there are people that see it as a a pro-life message, there are people who see it as an anti-father message. That's a weird sentiment to hear floating on the the internet these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those those people are to be blocked and reported. (laughs) We'll be right back to talk more about how Arrival relates to Contact. 
is that? Is that a new symbol? I can't tell. <sighs> Dr. Banks? Hey, 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 what are you doing? Yeah, fine. They need to see me. Take it off her hazmat suit. Dr. Banks? Are you okay? They need to see me. Dr. Banks? She's walking towards the screen. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. As I said in the last episode, these two movies have a lot of superficial similarities. Analytical-minded female protagonists, men who want to stand in their way, violence-prone extremists, cable news talking heads that double as exposition machines, alien communications that could be threats, technological gifts or plans for weapons, and cosmic encounters that double as personal journeys. So are, are these essentially the same movie or, 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 uh, yeah, you, you, or the way what? you put it? It's like those aren't superficial similarities <laughs> at all. Those yeah. are like you're, they're basically the same thing. Uh, well, I mean, I think you established a distinction really well in the opening to this episode where in contact, it's about us going looking for something and in an arrival. It's about something coming to us. So it's sort of a offensive versus defensive uh, approach, <laughs> uh, I guess, to put it in. Those are sports terms, right? Yeah, so I think that there's kind of a basic difference to the approach, but they do have a lot of sort of uh, narrative similarities. And a lot of just small, trivial similarities as well. I mean, including the idea of the giant camp outside of the area where aliens are being communicated with, where people are out kind of expressing their own inner weirdnesses, like through the lens of the aliens. The central relationships, as I said, I want to talk about. But just in brief, in both films, you have a a female scientist who is deeply driven to pursue a specific thing and a male who just kind of like hangs back and waits for her and is sort of the emotional center. I've talked to people on staff at The Verge who <laughs> their their immediate reaction to arrival was, oh, Jeremy Renner is playing the woman. Jeremy Renner is playing mm-hmm. the, the traditional role of the woman in a film like this. And seeing that lens on contact, I was I sort of went, oh, sure. Uh, Matthew McConaughey's there to express the emotional side of the equation and to hang back waiting for his woman to come home and to be like faithful and loyal and not have much of a story purpose. And you kind of get that in both cases. But I think Jeremy Renner's character, like the emotion still exists without him. Like he is not the, the main conduit for it in, in Arrival, I don't think. Yeah, I I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, he's not just ornamentation, but... It's not really his story. There's another reason why that, that voiceover is an odd touch midway yeah. through the movie. <laughs> well, he's uh, just kind of a perspective. He's kind of yeah. a floating perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me connection-wise between these two movies is the government response, mm-hmm. which which in both cases struck me as, as plausible, especially Arrival. The thing about Arrival is like you, you've got like all of these governments working in collaboration, but they have a different policies in terms of where they might be leading militarily uh, in, in response. And it's just that seems so dead on to me, to the way international relations work, that you have the, this very uh, this this bond between countries or this relationship between countries that's very tenuous and it could be 
shattered by one country being more impulsive than another, which of course then got me thinking, you know, I've seen Arrival twice, you know, once in September and then once last night after Donald Trump uh, <laughs> was elected president. And it's like, you know, I think we can say with some certainty that a Trump administration would completely screw up <laughs> this whole operation because they, they uh, because they're so, you I know. I was trying not to go there. <laughs> you, you have to, but it's like, because they're, they're so, so incurious, so, so militaristic, so. Xenophobic. Right, exactly. But then and what ends up happening in Arrival is is moving in part because it's a triumph of empiricism, of empathy, of nations working together, you know, of, of trying to understand each other and try to both understand each other as uh, nations and, and then, of course, understand these aliens that have come to visit. And it just... Yeah, the scariest moment in the film in some ways is when the communication between countries gets turned off mm-hmm. one by one. Yeah. Like, there's, this is not going anywhere good at all. No. There's also this feeling in both films that science qua science, like the purity of science, is just about discovering more about the universe. Research versus applied science. Exactly. And like what can what can research tell us about the world we live in and who we are? And that the government is a constant barrier to that because the government is only thinking in terms of how can we own this? How can we contain this? How can we weaponize this? How can we convert this? How can I use this for my specific profit? And failing any of those, how can I suppress this and make sure that nobody else can get their hands on it? It's just the the constant feeling in both films of the government as this paranoid and fundamentally inept force in the universe. Yeah, that speaks to what struck me most or is the biggest connection between the two of them, just in terms of how they approach the value of science and of curiosity, like how important curiosity is to us as a species and us moving forward as a species. And Contact makes that point very explicitly, like Jodie Foster has a speech uh, when she yells at the Haddon uh, suits, you know, trying to get them to get, give her money. Like she has this whole, people thought the airplane was crazy and people thought, really, you know, <laughs> uh, like it, it hammers at home very hard. But that idea is also seen in Arrival just in the way that Louise wants to approach learning about these aliens. And she's being told like, this is what you have to find out. This is a message you have to find out. And she is coming at it of we have to learn who they are. And the way we learn that is how they communicate. And that's, I think, it comes from more of a pure scientific curiosity place than a applied science perspective. I think one thing kind of coming out of that that's really interesting to me, there is, there's a long running theme in movies about science and specifically about scientists playing God that says that female scientists are just terrible. Mm-hmm. Female scientists bring their messy female emotions into things and screw everything up. And you see it in movies like Splice or Transcendence. There's just this feeling of science is meant to be an emotionless uh, in field of endeavor and bringing emotion into it opens the door for all kinds of horror. Both of these films are expressly about how having a woman scientist who brings her personal baggage and her personal emotion and her her trauma and her pain into her work not only drives it but enables it because she brings in a certain amount of nurturing bias, a certain amount of emotional feeling that the aliens have to be good and that whatever comes, it's more important that we find out than that we pull back. And both of these films kind of lionize the idea of the female scientist. 
almost mm-hmm. kind of to the detriment of everybody else in the film. To that point, I, I do need to point out the fact that Jeremy Renner's character is a scientist as well, it, whereas in Contact, Matthew McConaughey is, I guess, the, the analog character and is outside science. He is a physicist, I believe, mm-hmm. or applied... Like a theoretical the, physicist? Yes, the, a theoretical physicist. Um, so he is also like kind of a personification of that pure science. She's, for that matter, she's not a scientist. Right. So she's a linguist, which I, I think... I, I don't want to offend anyone in <laughs> who is a linguist. I, I think that it is considered a science, but a soft science. Mm. But she still takes a scientific approach sure. to yeah. to her methods. So, and she—I mean—I think she's brought in specifically to take a scientific expro- approach to it. The rigor is certainly something that defines both Jodie Foster and Amy Adams' approach to their work mm-hmm. as well. I mean, just an intense, relentless focus on the task at hand, and really, and also aggressiveness and kind of warding off all of these elements that would get in the way of the work, usually the government. There's a lot of resistance from both of them on those fronts as well. Yeah, they're both very fierce um, about defending what they see as the right thing to do. But they're also, both of these films really heavily underline their vulnerability. I, I wouldn't call Louise fierce. I think she is a much more timid figure than Ellie is. She does fight for what she she stands up to Forrest Whitaker mm-hmm. over and over and over. Sure, but she just I think we see her being fearful a lot more. The only time we see Ellie be like kind of retiring or scared is like when she is going through the wormhole and like all bets are off, you know. But for the most part, she is a more of an aggressor, and I think we see Louise being scared a lot like there's several shots of her hands shaking you know and jeremy renner's character is also scared like we in kind of a more comical fashion you know like it's a it's a scary experience going into a like i, I like that we got to see that and i like that she wasn't like i am fearless science lady you know <laughs> like like i like that we saw that aspect of her character um but i think it is very different from Ellie's characterization in Contact. I don't know. I mean, Ellie backs down in the face of Tom Skerritt over and over and over. Like, he keeps showing up and stealing all her work. And she, when it seems to be just the two of them and, you know, workers as witnesses, perhaps, she screams him down, but she doesn't get anywhere. But when he humiliates her and um, and browbeats her and turns her into his secretary in front of the White House briefing, she just she humbly backs down. When he humiliates her at the, the White House briefing, she backs down. When he humiliates her in front of Congress, she just backs down. Like, there is a certain amount of meekness going on there. Does she have a choice in those situations? Yeah, so, I, mean, I, I don't know that she has her... She's a little her options are a little limited in those situations but she but recognizing that her options are limited is a form of meekness because she doesn't recognize that her options are limited when the the grant board tells her no Mm. she (laughs) she goes on a screaming rampage i don't think she can bum rush the mic at the press conference though (laughs) that would probably be a bad idea she could certainly talk about it to uh, angela bassett come on if there's a fierce woman on the planet it's her actually Real quick, does contact pass the Bechtel test because Jodie Foster asked Angela Bassett where to, she can get a really great dress? Yes. Okay. And and I, I did have that conscious moment of she didn't say so I can look good for my man. It passed the Bechtel test. <laughs> but it's implied. It's so that she can look good for her yeah. man. <laughs> Word implied isn't in the Bechtel test. <laughs> all right. But yeah, I'll it's, take it. it's a pretty slim victory. Yeah. And I'm not sure uh, Arrival does at all. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the gender of Abbott and Costello or if they even have what about the, the gender. What about, the, what about when she's in class with the conversation? Please turn on a news channel. Yeah. Yep. All right, passes. It just skirts by. Yeah. <laughs> 
We're on the absurd fringes of the of the Bechtel. <laughs> <laughs> we talking about these movies. You know, uh, what's another weird little coincidence between the two of them is both of these films have a scene where the female protagonist has to kind of get sucked up into the alien's world to go one-on-one in conversation mm-hmm. with them. And when that happened in Arrival, like, I hadn't seen Contact since it came out, but I was like, oh my God, we're, we're definitely back in contact here. <laughs> yeah. What did you think of, I mean, so much about the look of Arrival is great. Uh, what did you think of, because uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking about how most of Contact really holds up visually speaking. What did you think of that scene where she is sucked up into the alien ship and her hair is floating around her? And uh, what do we think? I found the digital hair super distracting and not yeah. very convincing. But I was also a little out of myself during that scene because I was kind of trying to figure out, like, is this really happening? Because, mm. you know, we know that that atmosphere is poisonous. Is this something that they're projecting into her head? Have they done something to her? Like, what exactly is going on there is never explained. And in the the scene in Contact, we have that moment where she kind of pokes at the barrier and everything ripples. And it's very consciously, very clearly communicated that this isn't real. There's not really anything like that in Arrival. Like, does that take place? What's going on there? Guys, nope. anything? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing's happening. I, 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 I just stuck on on a shout out to Bradford Young as one of the best cinematographers around. Yeah. So no, like, I, just, I, I definitely wanted to mention Bradford Young because he's so I, beautiful. I, I never I never thought I would be a, a fangirl for a cinematographer, but here we are. <laughs> Bradford Young, man, he's those great. trees, man. That shot, that helicopter shot of those trees. No, but seriously, did the flying hair bug you? No, not really. Actually, I mean, it's been a couple weeks since I've seen the movie, and that that detail kind of uh, drifted away, like so many fine strands of hair. <laughs> All right, Arrival and its floating strands of hair is currently in theaters and will likely be there for a while. People seem to like it. I think it's going to be an awards season. Uh, it's going to be in the conversation. It'll be in my conversation, at least. Contact is available on Blu-ray and DVD. It can be streamed it right now on Netflix, and you can rent it digitally through various uh, streaming services. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on the films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show, in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, want to kick us off? What in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, well, I don't know that I necessarily want to say it's been good for me lately, but it's certainly been enlightening and engrossing and important for me, and that is the documentary 13th from Ava DuVernay, mm. which is, uh, I believe, a Netflix exclusive and streaming on there. This is not an easy watch. It is an engrossing watch. It's uh, called the 13th after the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlawed slavery. And it pretty convincingly draws a line between the United States history of slavery and its current state of mass incarceration, particularly among black men. And it's really gutting in many ways. Um, I think it's incredibly important to watch right now, given the current climate of things. And just as a documentary, I think it's really well realized. It's 
there's, you know, a lot of your standard talking heads, but they're really good talking heads. Mm -hmm. And um, she makes smart and judicious use of archival footage and does include some pretty harrowing police shooting videos from recent years, but deploys them in a way that is affecting more than shocking. It's really, a really well done film that I've thought about. Uh, I've watched this film, I think, over a month ago at this point, and I've thought about it like almost every day since then. Yeah, I mean, I think the word deploy is the is the right one here, because as as you say, it does have a lot of talking heads. And it does draw, I think, it, it, a very clear line between slavery and mass incarceration and all the steps in between and the way things have, have evolved or, or over time and changed over time. But then she does hit you with a couple of montage sequences that are really well placed and really powerful for being just these discrete elements almost within the mm-hmm. f- within the film that don't really go with the flow of talking heads that that, that really stand out as sequences or as really kind of like money uh, moments um so uh yeah I, I recommend that film too it's so easy if you have netflix it's right there yeah. god's sakes we don't have to do, do, have to do anything no i'm just mad no, I'm, not, no, I'm mad that people haven't seen it it's right there 13th streaming on netflix Check it out. Okay. How about you, Scott? I'm going to shift gears a bit and recommend L. Uh, this is the new film by Paul Verhoeven, uh, which has been uh, scorching the earth since Cannes in May, but is only just now getting a theatrical release here in the U.S. You know, it's a rape revenge story of sorts, uh, starring Isabel Huppert as a gaming software developer who's raped by an intruder when the film opens, but whose response to the incident is as much a mystery as the man responsible. Uh, she searches for possible suspects, but she also has to contend with a horrific violence in her own past, which has made her persona non grata in some circles and brought her some confusion, too, over whether it indicts her as well. Elle is a movie where Verhoeven is playing with matches and oily rags. <laughs> uh, it's a disturbing movie on a visceral level alone and then it's disturbing on a psychological level too um but it you know verhoeven's career has always been the the main theme has always been this idea of the human potential for committing atrocity um which was relevant to verhoeven's childhood and occupied holland and i, I think appears to be quite relevant in the volatile world in which we live today so if you can stomach it Surely, if you know Paul Verhoeven's work, you, you know who you are. Uh, L is really uh, something to see. Yeah, I'd definitely be aware that, as always, Verhoeven goes for the shock value. I mean, not without purpose and not without thought, but it's it's a graphic film. It is an emotionally and physically difficult film. And it's a film that left me really questioning, I guess, not what he was doing, but why he was doing it. Because there's there are so many points throughout that film where I thought, I find it hard to believe that a human being would react that way. I wonder why it's happening. And I really wish, given given kind of what an emotionally twisty film it is and how surprising it is and how incredible the performances are, I wish there had been more of a payoff for it. I wish I had come out of that movie understanding better why the characters did what they oh, did. Oh, I wish I wish we could talk about <laughs> about it more <laughs> because uh, because I do I really think the payoff to this film is something else, but 
But uh, L is finding it's you know I think it's, it's not it's, here yet. I don't think it opens. This, I don't, not in Chicago. Not 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 in Chicago. It's but it, it opened. It's opened in. It opened in New York, outs. and then yeah. it'll roll out. But uh, I saw a poster here in Chicago at the landmark, so it's going to probably wind it wind up there. But maybe uh, I'm just more aware of this because I'm writing for a New York publication. But it seems like this is just the the winter of films with incredibly long protracted rollouts. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that too. The Handmaiden was like yeah. a month before it got here. Yeah, it, it took a long time, and then it's it's still here. It's just it's been sitting in theaters as people slowly and gradually find it. The next picture show is moving to New York. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Keith, what about you? I and well, this is a, a an incomplete entry at this point, but I've been making my way through the uh, box set of uh, Lone Wolf and Cub films. Oh, nice! Which uh, Criterion put out. These are early seventies uh, Japanese uh, action films about a uh, the former execu- former executioner to the to the shogun who is uh runs afoul of his master and becomes a masterless ronin wandering japan and and uh, hiring out his services with the help of his uh young as in as in two three-year-old son and uh their uh, uh baby carriage which is equipped with lo- lots of weapons and it is uh these are very fun Natasha, have you seen any of these or? i have seen none of the movies yeah. i've read all of the graphic novels yeah which i which i i should say it's based on an early 70s manga series really um, extensive one like 28 yeah, volumes yeah, it's really big yeah it's it's a long a long running thing but uh, it the films are, are extremely stylish like like maybe a little too stylish at times <laughs> but uh, uh it's got that you know geysers of that you know bright red 70s blood spurting out all the time uh, <laughs> and and some very creative depictions of, of uh, human slaughter and uh, plus a cute kid uh, who's often right next to that slaughter. Oh my gosh, uh, the two things I like the most. Yeah. I, I, I believe that was... Kids a, and indiscriminate slaughter. I believe that was one of the suggestions we got for a pairing with Kubo and the Two Strings, which mm-hmm. now, hearing you, uh, yeah. now, now hearing you <laughs> describe it, uh, it's pretty hilarious. How many of them are there in the set? There's six films, and then there's Shogun Assassin, which is the early 80s uh, attempt to edit a couple of them together for, for the grindhouse and drive-in market, which is notable because it's also a source for, for many uh, Wu-Tang samples mm-hmm. or from uh, that film, Shogun Assassin. Or were they? Are they directed by the same person? Was it a like, first, kind of franchise first that jumped three around? Are directed by one director, and the second three are directed by another huh. director. And it's stars the brother of the producer, and the producer is the guy who plays Zatoichi in all the Zatoichi films. Oh. If, if I got all that correct, you have intrigued me. I think we're still waiting for your suggestion, Tasha. Well, uh, two things. One, I'll be brief on because it feels cheaty, but uh, the Torchwood miniseries, Children of Earth, I guess technically TV, but it's a it's a five-episode sequence that really stands alone as a not-quite-five-hour movie. I watched this having not watched previous uh, series of Torchwood. It just came so highly recommended to me. And if you liked Arrival and you want to see what it would look like if it went entirely in a different direction... <laughs> Uh, I think it's a a really spectacular companion piece. It's also incredibly eerie. Um, you need a very, very small amount of information about who the characters are in order to understand a few of the things that happen. But you definitely do not need to see the first uh, two seasons of the show. It's all on Netflix. I mean, the whole well, series is on Netflix. So you could watch those two first seasons if you wanted to. But if you just want to drop in and watch the five episode uh, Children of Earth, a single, unlike previous seasons of Torchwood, which were episodic. This is just one single story um, told really well. Hmm. 
But in case that is considered too cheaty because it's TV, I will recommend something else that's streaming on Netflix, which is the Ben Wheatley movie High Rise, mm-hmm. uh, starring Tom Hiddleston as a person who is not an alien, mm-hmm. but very often feels like an alien in an alien environment. It's based on a J.G. Ballard novel, and my understanding is that it adapts it fairly loosely. I've never read the book, um, but it definitely, from what I've read, takes some of the the language and the narration directly from the novel. And certainly draws on its themes of alienation, uh, kind of among the the rich and removed. It's about a man who moves into a high rise building, which then be- kind of becomes its own fiefdom. It's a very much a class story about the haves versus the have nots, and it is beautifully, beautifully shot. Tom Hiddleston, uh, who you may know as Loki, is such an otherworldly presence. He's kind of more and more, uh, I think he's part of the same species that produced uh, Tilda Swinton and Mm -hmm. David Bowie and very few others. Yeah, High Rise, it's it's definitely got some flaws uh, narratively in terms of kind of how quickly the world falls apart. Uh, And it's sort of meant to be satirical more than literal, but it just it drops you into a world that's like no one else with a character who's like no one else. And I just I found it mesmerizing in a very chilly way. It's very Gilliam-ish. It is. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but uh but i think it is worth your time it, it's very it's a, a very aggressive film which is not my impression of the novel which i love but um but yeah, it uh, kind of leads from point a to point z very quickly that does. film it's but hiddleston's great and, and yeah. some of the visuals are, are pretty are pretty striking i like I like jeremy irons as the mastermind I think, too and uh, i think you just kind of like turn the building on its side make it a train and then it's then it's snowcatcher it kind of is snowcatcher <laughs> which, which is way more entertaining <laughs> except it i mean snowcatcher fell apart for me at the end a lot more than High Rise did because High Rise is is all about the mood and the moment and it kind of slowly evolves whereas Snowcatcher is about this relentless drive to accomplish something and they go right up to the edge of Disneyland and then they kind of don't even turn around and go back they just kind of stand there with their mouths hanging open and nothing Agree happens. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of this podcast. All right, guys, thanks for all the great suggestions. It's uh, given me more to look forward to. And we'll be right back in just a moment. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out on December 13th and 15th. Genevieve, what do we have lined up? Moana, the latest film from Walt Disney Animation, does exactly what the company has done for 80 years now. It reimagines an existing myth as a kid-friendly new version of the story that follows the hero's journey pattern and adds catchy songs, comic relief animal companions, and lots of other familiar elements. But Moana feels like it does more with the formula than most Disney movies, thanks to its beautiful visuals and its fresh dedication to accurately and respectfully portraying the culture its South Pacific myth came from. It makes an interesting comparison with Disney's 1998 animated feature Mulan, which also repurposes an old myth and tells a very similar story to Moana's about a teenage girl respecting her culture's traditions, even though it means defying her family. But 18 years have made a huge difference in how Disney deals with diversity, non-European cultures, female protagonists, music, and a whole lot more. We're going to look at Moana and Mulan together, both for their remarkable similarities and for their really telling differences. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Contact and Arrival and anything else film-related. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? I am at vox.com at the culture section there, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. 
Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in uh, NPR, uh, Variety, Washington Post, uh, Rolling Stone, and uh, New York Times and other such fine publications. Uh, uh, Tasha Robinson? Uh, you can find me writing about film and other things at TheVerge.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I'm, I'm Keith Phipps. You can find me at UpRocks.com and KPhipps3000 on Twitter. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin, the Animal Griffith, for its assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.